This morning we conclude our four weeks in the celebration of Advent. And if you're new to church, Advent means arrival. And we always cast our vision back to the arrival of our God who incarnated himself in Jesus Christ. Like a playwright who wrote himself into human history, we celebrate this. And we look forward to his second arrival when he will renew all things. And we trust him for his grace in these days in between. We've explored our need for God's grace, his plan, his his, uh, promise. And this morning we will be looking at the announcement from Luke chapter 2, the first 18 verses. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom his favor rests. And the angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. This text that we're reading and reflecting on this morning, this is not nostalgia, this is not sentimental Poetry. This is not imagery. This is not a, a midgen or a, a, a midgen, a, a myth or a legend. If you put those things together, you get a midgen. Uh, it's not that either. This Caesar Augustus in verse one was given the title Augustus in Rome in 27 BC. Christian faith is pinned to history. We believe things that are theological claims to be sure. But Christian faith is not just rooted in theological claims. It's rooted in historical claim. That the life, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are all all irreversibly written into human history. And we reflect on this at Christmas because Christmas for Christians is not normal. The jingle jangle of Christmas makes it normal. The jingle jangle of everything going on since... November 1st makes it very normal because shopping is normal and eggnog and malls and blowout sales and having boxes arrive at your door. All of that stuff is extremely normal. Uh, Songs about love and bells. Uh, It's extremely normal. But 
when God comes into our space and announces that it's his space, that's not normal. And we stop and reflect on the glory of that, the implications of that. God coming into humanity. This text is like the sun cresting on the horizon. That something new is about to happen. Christmas, for the believer, is endlessly interesting because it causes us to pause and look out with, with, with no apology at the horrors and the darkness and the difficulties of this world and what it means to be human with a sense of true hope beyond nostalgia, beyond circumstances having to work out right. We don't have a silver lining theology. Our theology is rooted in a God of grace and hope who will renew all things but gives us grace for the times in between. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, who spoke a lot about the rise of the imminent frame, the idea, the philosophy that everything in the world is only a part of the natural order, understandable without reference to anything outside itself. But then Taylor goes on in that work to describe how even if we ascribe to the, only the imminent frame, we are haunted as humans by the transcendent. We are haunted by a desire for the transcendent. We are haunted by this unrelenting desire for there to be more to this life than there is. To borrow the, the words of Ecclesiastes, there is an ecclesiastical groan that eternity has been placed in our hearts by God. That the fingerprints of God's existence are across our universe through nature and in the human soul through knowledge. If we can explore these things, we can, we can suppress this knowledge uh, but we can explore these things with astronomical, scientific inquiry and, phil- and, and psychological inquiry. We can explore our universe on a macro scale and find mind-boggling precision and intention and design everywhere. Or we can just stop and look in the mirror and ask ourselves the questions about the deepest longings of our soul and find that meaning and purpose and love Dominate every art form. Dominate the imagination. Dominate the desires. Dominate the ways in which we approach science. Expecting to find order. Expecting to find reason. Expecting to find logic. As we do our disciplines. And our God, our transcendent God, did not remain transcendent, but we celebrate at Christmas that he's come to be with us. Verse 4 says that he's born in Bethlehem. Fitting, because in the Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus calls himself in John 6, the bread of life. Being our God of grace, he nourishes us. He strengthens us. He he sustains us. Verse 7 says that there was no room for them when they come during the census to their home and their their town. There's no room for them in the inn. And there's two words in the ancient Greek for inn. One is pandakian and one is kataluma. Pandakian is like a public inn. That's not the word used here. The word used here is kataluma, which means the inn that was in an ancient Palestinian home, whereby there was a section of the house carved out for the animals to come in at night to be kept away from the predators. And so because all the families had converged on their birthplaces, Mary and Joseph go to their home, and the house is full with relatives, and nobody's going to give up their bed for the pregnant relative. So from the jump, Jesus is rejected, even from his own people. From the jump, from the beginning, we see this picture from the cradle to the grave of Jesus experiencing rejection so that all of us who would turn to him would experience adoption. I once heard a therapist named Dr. Paul Tripp, who spent years as a pastor and then most of his ministry life as a professional therapist, 
uh, wrote an article years ago that I read, and he said of this text that this announcement of glory and grace not only is an announcement of God's mission, but it describes our need. I never forgot that, so I'm going to use that as, a, as our means of walking through this text very briefly this morning. I want to talk about how this passage we just read, the announcement of God's glory and peace, describes our need, Christ's mission, and our message. First, how it describes our need. The announcement says, glory to God in the highest. It's a reminder that God is highest. We've made other things highest. We've always made other things highest. This is the message of the Bible since Genesis 3. The longings of our soul are always oriented to glory in what we consider highest. But the soul is off kilter. The human soul is in a state of disarray and dis-ease and chaos when something else is highest. The driving force over and over the driving force under every unloving act in the world is glorying in the wrong thing in the highest. All the horrors, the darkness, the sadness, the things that fill our news feeds, the brokenness that surrounds us is a constant reminder that we've put something else highest, self-interest highest. It's always the same old things through human history. Power, prestige, wealth, prominence, these things are highest, politics, highest. When self becomes highest, the glorious, flourishing humanity that God has created crumbles. And we have a problem because when we put the wrong thing highest and we have a glory problem, we inevitably have a peace problem. If we have a problem with glory, we have a problem with peace. And if our rule, our way of life is highest, we can't have peace because something is constantly threatening our peace and then we've got to combat the things that threaten our peace. And we've got to fend off the things that threaten our peace. And we live lives at the mercy of circumstances. We've gloried in the wrong thing in the highest. And we don't, have any, we don't only have a glory problem, but we have a peace problem. This is unsettling. In 1965, there was a very famous Christmas show. And some of you might have watched it this year called The Charlie Brown Christmas Special. And there's a moment where the... Illustrator Charles Schultz does something brilliant. There, there's that very familiar point where, where uh, Schroeder is at the piano and they're all dang, singing and dancing and then Charlie Brown says, well, somebody tell me what Christmas is all about. And the lights go down low and then, uh, and then little uh, Linus gets up there with a security blanket and he says, lights, please. And then the animator does something that this character had never done and he drops his security blanket, and he reads Luke 2. It's a small picture, but it's a beautiful picture. I think of what this text is inviting all of us to do, which is drop our security blankets. Stop putting the wrong thing highest. What is that little security blanket that you're trusting in? It's too small. Our souls were created for something greater. We must glory to God in the highest, so that we can find the peace that our souls truly crave, As Jesus said in John 14, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's move on. Glory and peace not only describes our need, but it also describes Christ's mission. The angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among whom his favor rests. You read the entire 
Old Testament, nobody has God's favor. Nobody wants God. Everybody wants to be God. That's been the problem since Genesis 3. The word, the word favor, here translated from the Greek, delight, satisfaction, full marks, five stars, too enthusiastic, thumbs up. Nobody has that. Nobody has the favor of God. How can this announcement even come? God has been silent for 400 years. There have been 400 years of silent nights before this, since Malachi. When you pin it to world history, people of God, God was silent for 400 years because they abandoned him and they worshipped other things. How in the world can God promise peace to undeserving sinners? He can promise it because Jesus Christ is coming in grace to die for undeserving sinners. This is not only an announcement of our need, it's an announcement of Christ's mission. This angelic proclamation is not only announcing Christ's birth, it's announcing the necessity for his death so that we can actually have the favor of God, so that we can actually have peace with God. Christ came to do what we cannot do. We don't live good lives and, and, and impress God in any us. We are saved by grace alone, by Christ's perfection, not our progress. He came to do that, to accomplish it for us. It's why the symbol of our faith is a cross and not a ladder. We don't meet God halfway. And so these shepherds in verse 12 are given a sign. The child will be wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger. And then they, the shepherds see the gospel. They don't know they're looking at the gospel, but they see the sign, the sign to the shepherds. This innocent child wrapped in strips of linen, laying on a stone manger. This foreshadows the innocent Christ wrapped in the grave cloths, lying in a stone tomb. The gift of God's grace and adoption. But not only does God's, this announcement of glory and peace describe our need in Christ's mission, it describes our message. The shepherds have this gospel-driven response. And this gospel-driven response to the gospel, it illustrates ours. God came to them in grace. In response, they sought Jesus. They worshiped Jesus. They go into the town as these humble evangelists sharing the good news of Jesus. It's the most important announcement ever. It's containing the most important news in human history, and it's given to the most underwhelming, undeserving audience of all time. These shepherds, they're just doing night shift on a hillside. They are not looking for Jesus. They're not praying to God. They're not looking for Jesus. They're just doing their thing. At this point in Israel's history, uh, the, 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 the vocation of being a shepherd went from being like this really uh, sort of cherished idea uh, that, that uh, you know, we have these images of in the modern West. But it, it was not that. It, it was actually something that you didn't want to do. That's why David's brothers were all like, the youngest gets to do it. Nobody wants to do this. And by this point in human history, I'm quoting from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 25b. They described shepherds as dishonest and disqualified from giving witnesses in court because shepherds are robbers. So these guys are just on the hillside, not looking for Jesus. <laughs> and, they don't, and they don't deserve this announcement at all. They, if anything, they, they deserve fear this. They don't deserve fear not. They deserve the Humphrey Bogart, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. That's what they deserve. They don't deserve this. 
I can just imagine them like laying there. One of them is drunk like Jack Sparrow. Like, am I the only one that's seeing this? You guys are seeing this as well, right, guys? The heaven just cracked open. There's a lot of... I'm not the only one seeing this, right? These guys don't deserve this at all. But church, this sends us a strong message. We are the ragamuffins on a hillside. Every believer throughout all of history is the undeserving audience of radical grace. God moved in thousands of ways, which is why you're sitting here this morning hearing these very words come out of my mouth. Because of his love, because of his grace. That he comes to us, though we're undeserving, to draw us to his wondrous love. And so this is our message. The gospel pattern of the shepherd's life, it's the gospel pattern in ours. We respond to Jesus. We worship Jesus. We go into our city and we just humbly love our neighbor. We seek the good of our city and we look for opportunity. We make opportunity to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. When the, when the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying that it made them. Everybody's marveling. And I would just want you to just sit in that for a quick second, that they're marveling at what shepherds are saying. Because one of the things that we are very quick to say is, that's not my gift, I'm not trained for this, I just need one more course, maybe another book, maybe the church could run some sort of a class, then I'd feel confident sharing my faith. Hey, man, you're, you're all more qualified than the shepherds everywhere. Our challenge is not that we need more training, it's that we need boldness, and we need to... Uh, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and lovingly caring and uh, in caring ways uh, share our faith. Because I'm struck by the fact that God didn't send the angelic host to appear above the temple. He didn't choose a handful of scholars who had an admirable, acute, academic understanding of his word and grasp of his law. He chose these Tatadamalian sheep watchers and they're the very first ones to spread the word that the king had come. God used the stammering lips of those shepherds. May he use the stammering lips of this church. The good news that the voice that thundered on Sinai is crying in a manger. The king who stoops. The God of mercy. This transcendent king. The God of grace. The all-powerful is humble. He's born into the mess of a manger. Willing to come into the mess of our lives. To quote a Lutheran pastor that I heard yesterday preaching in Palestine, if Christ is under the rubble, Christ comes into a world under the rubble. This is our God of grace. The one who would bring the hope that our souls crave, the one who will renew all things, not sweep us away to some ethereal coloring book picture of heaven, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ reminding us he'll renew this world. He will renew the glorious creation that we love studying. He'll renew these bodies. And we will live to the praise of the one who created us in wonder. God's gift of grace wrapped in swaddling cloths would later be unwrapped in the grave clothes of the empty tomb. Hope was announced. Angels sang. The undeserved were blown away. Grace had come. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.